want to uh, dive right in in just a second here. Um, but, but I want to just sort of relay something that, that went on this week. Many of you know we had um, a couple funerals. Um, I sort of functionally had three funerals. Uh, on Friday, we had to uh, put our dog away. And, uh, and so that's not the same as losing your mom. I'm not trying to compare that. But, but it is something that was hard. And so three days in a row, like I'm thinking about these important issues. And, and this has to do with Revelation because the Bible uses words to talk about life this side of heaven that describe how brief it is. It uses words like, like brevity, talks about life being a vapor, a mist, dust, ashes. And I got to thinking this week about how, how Scripture talks about it like this. And, and, and I was thinking about Revelation because Revelation is sort of like that. Revelation is sort of a wake-up call to the brevity of life, to the seriousness and the real weight of what life this side of heaven is all about. That's what Revelation is. It's a wake-up call. It's a shock to the system. And, and we, 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 we got into that sort of shock of the system last week a little bit as we talked about a clear picture of Christ. And this week, we're going we're gonna to see that picture uh, more clearly, more fully today. Uh, Revelation is a book <laughs> that, that, as we talk about, uh, last week, and at the end of the service, we do a benediction of Revelation 1-3. It talks about how we need to be reading these words and keeping and heeding these words because the time is near, it says. So even Revelation itself, in the third verse, says the time is near, the time is brief. Don't wait. Be ready. That's the kind of seriousness with which Scripture approaches the weight and importance of life. And, and Revelation, Revelation is is imploring us this side of heaven to live in light of the reality of the glory of the risen Christ. Because as we'll see, the glory of the risen Christ as He is right now, as I'm speaking, is far beyond our greatest thoughts of Him. And if we knew it and we, and we held it in our hands, if we understood and grasped a, a smidge of, of that, that infinity and that perfection of the risen Christ, we would be forever changed. And that's what Revelation is describing in these words. And we see that glory in the text here. We've broken it down into three sections in your study notes there. I just want to go through these real quick. We'll, we'll read through the whole passage and break down these three sections so you can sort of see how this theme develops. The big idea is that the risen Christ in glory demands obedience from His, church is, from his churches. So, so here's the, the first few blanks there. In, the, in that first section is that John, the fellow sufferer, he writes in verses 9 to 11 about the risen Christ in glory, verses 12 through 16, who demands obedience from his churches. So you can go ahead and fill those out uh, early on here if you'd like. He demands obedience from his, capital H, churches. The literary framework of those three sections is sort of the big idea that we're, that we're meant to see here. That the risen Christ in glory uh, demands obedience from his churches. So let's read through here, verses 9 to 11. See that first section here. This is where John, the, the fellow sufferer, writes. He says this, I, John, this is verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That's that first section where John, who, who describes himself as a fellow sufferer, we'll come back to that in a second, and he writes to tell us of, verses 12 through 16, the glory of the risen Christ. This is the picture, the clarity of the picture of Christ. Verse 12, Then I turned, this is John telling us, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We'll explain that in a few minutes here. And then he finally finishes up 17 through 20 with a result of the glory of the risen Christ that demands obedience from his churches. And sort of introduces this obedience theme this week. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks when Christ goes around and, and walks and looks at the churches to demand that obedience. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Verse 20, he finishes up, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We're going to jump back in verse 9 here in just a second, but, uh, but a number of you might not have been here last week and, and uh, I would encourage you to, to listen to the sermon online to catch up. Uh, I just want to sort of briefly tell you where we've come from and some of our assumptions about reading Revelation here. Uh, so, so last week, we talked about how, how Revelation is a book that reveals Jesus Christ for who He really is. Which means that our conception of Him our view of who Jesus Christ is must be informed, as we said last week, first and, foremost, first and foremost by who He shows Himself to be to us. By who He shows Himself to be to us. That's a top-down kind of transaction. And as we talked about last week, and many of us have experienced, we have sort of messed that up, turned it upside down, and we have maligned the Bible view even of who Jesus is because we have created expectations of Jesus based on our own desires. I want you to think about that for a second. If you don't get this straight, the book of Revelation won't mean what it's meant to mean. We have formed an image of who we want Christ to be for us that is a backwards from the bottom up kind of process where we functionally end up revealing to God who we want Him to be. <laughs> Tell me you haven't done that many, many times in how you think about who God is and what He's supposed to do for you. 
If we're honest enough to admit it, our Christianity is often more about our expectations of Him than it is a worship of God for who He really is. Revelation is a shock to the system that says, wake up and see who He really is. Many of us, if we're honest, go through life functionally revealing to God who we want Him to be for us. Instead of the, the nature of a revealing of, of Scripture and of Revelation, which is a top-down transaction, God reveals Himself to us, not the other way around. And we've got to wrap our minds around that first. Because if you, if you don't get that you're going to end up making a whole bunch of errors in your thinking about who God is. I speak to you as one who has made all sorts of those errors. Those kinds of errors show up in all manner of Christian living and how we approach our life. How many of us, for example, approach our participation in the body of Christ as if my expectations of the body of Christ for me guide how I feel and think and act in the body? pretty much all of us have made a real serious case for bottom-up revelation being how we function. And what we see here in the first chapter of Revelation and here in verses 9 to 20 is that Jesus Christ is a vision of God, the reality about which is so overwhelming we cannot handle him in power that he has to limit himself for us to know him and to relate to him. That's who Jesus was when he was on earth, God's limited glory that we are able to handle. So fundamentally, at a, at a base level, if you're going to get out of Revelation what it communicates, you've got to throw away cartoon Jesus. You've got to do away with flannel graph cartoon Jesus who is made in your image and based on our expectations of him. Because any Jesus who takes his cue from you or from me is heresy. And is not the vision of the risen Christ, capital R, capital C, that's shown to us in Revelation. Jesus didn't come for us to conveniently place him in our back pocket and take him out to use when we want to. He came to be worshipped. And he will be. Someday he'll demand it. He's gracious enough to simply deserve it and ask for us to come along for the ride right now. And so what we'll see in these verses is the incomparable glory of the risen Christ, capital R, capital C, who is a picture, a vision, a, a boundless authority and power kind of figure. That's who Jesus is. And Revelation is begging, begging us to hear the truth clearly. This isn't like a, do you think maybe you might want to come along with Jesus for the ride? Do you think perchance you might want to consider? That's not this Jesus. This Jesus is a, he deserves and demands all worship, and there will be a time when it will all happen. And I hope that you're right side of the equation for that. So Revelation says, get ready, <laughs> fill your lamps with oil, Matthew 25, because, because he's not going to set his clock around the convenience of our calendars. And for many of us who live life as if that's the case, 
we are functionally ignoring his matchless authority and power as master and creator and sustainer of every single neutron, electron, and proton of our bodies. To live as if the picture given to us today is not real is to live a lie. C.S. Lewis says it well. It's, it's a good quote, so I put it in your study notes. He says, a man can no more diminish God's glory, though we think we can. We can ignore it if we think we can. By refusing to worship him, then a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Some of us have just plain got to get back to the basics of childlike wonder and wholehearted worship of the God who deserves every ounce of glory and praise. Some of us have just got to get back to the plain old, he deserves your worship. So, back to the text. Verse 9, chapter 1. Let's just go straight up Bible. Verse 9 says, I, John, he names himself there as the author. I, John, names himself as the author. And then he gives sort of a long title for himself. Uh, look at how much is in between these two, uh, these two commas. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I, John, was on the island called Patmos. He identifies himself here uh, in two ways, as a brother and as a partner. He says, I'm, I'm a brother. I'm, I'm a part of this family. And in this family, tribulation, suffering, trials happen. He says, I'm a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. Uh, John is saying, I'm with you, I got you, I understand what suffering and what hardship look like. In fact, he says that hardship is part and parcel of being in Jesus. He says, I'm a partner in the tribulation. That's another word for trial. I'm a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He's saying trials are what happen when you're a part of this kingdom. So don't be surprised by them. The scriptures I'm about to read here are listed in your study notes if you want to check me and get all Berean. Uh, John says that trials are what happen when you're a part of the kingdom. Matthew 24, 9 says, this is Jesus speaking, then at the end of the age, they will deliver you, speaking about us in the kingdom, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Hmm, sign me up. Romans 12 says to be patient in tribulation. It's not saying there might be. It's saying be patient in the tribulation. Acts 14.22. Uh, spend some time with this one for a while. And then wonder if indeed your conception of following Christ is a little bit easy. <laughs> it says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So do I enter as a child or through tribulation? <laughs> Yes. 1 Thessalonians 3 sound a lot like Acts 14. 1 Thessalonians 3 says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. The assumption is that the afflictions are coming. And then it says this, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined 
for afflictions. We know this because the next verse says it. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. So apparently, friends, an accurate view of following Christ involves the idea that suffering is going to be a part of that. And keep Jesus in your back pocket because your image dictates who he is. That kind of cartoon Jesus won't help you be prepared for suffering. Only a Jesus who's worthy of your worship, that is clearly the picture given to us in verses 9 through 20. Only that kind of Jesus can make you prepared for what he's going to do and where he's going to take you. We don't have time for this one, but Philippians 3.10 is a a super cool verse that talks about what it's like to share in the, the fellowship of suffering with Jesus. So, so, so can you, can I, can we say that we want to know what it's like to, to share in the sufferings of Christ? Because that's part and parcel of following Him in the kingdom. Becoming like Him in His death, as Philippians 3.10 says, or are we still stuck at easy victory and cheap grace? A lot of people's Jesus gets them to easy victory and cheap grace. And easy victory and cheap grace won't help you when it's hard. You'll say, I don't want that Jesus. That Jesus doesn't help me. You'll be right. John knew personally what it was like to suffer. And so that's what he means by being a partner in the tribulation. That's why he says this, verse 9. He was on the island called Patmos. It's why he was there in the first place, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, on account of of preaching the gospel. Uh, Here's the island from which uh, John was writing. It's called Patmos, P-A-T-M-O-S. And it's uh, right here in the Aegean Sea here, small little place there. Those are the seven churches. Uh, He was exiled to this island, so he had been undergoing persecution uh, this, this is a dude who knew what persecution looked and felt like. Uh, there is a, an early church tradition uh, that he was forced to drink poison and he lived, that he was uh, forced to sit in a pot of boiling oil and he lived. So this dude knows what it's mean to endure physical suffering. So verse 10, he was on the Spirit in the Lord's day, it says. And that phrase, in the Spirit, is a phrase that shows up four different times in Revelation. Shows up four times, and it's a significant marker in, in what's going on in Revelation there. Uh, it shows up four times as a mark of the beginning of a vision that John receives from God. These four times, I think, are in your study notes, are in 110, 42, 17, 3, and 21, 10. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10, that's here. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2, 17, verse 3, and 21, 10. And so John was, was in church. On the Lord's Day, it says, uh, because Christians worshipped on the day of Jesus' resurrection. And here comes the vision. Here comes the vision. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So trumpets, trumpets sound not when I speak or you speak. Trumpets sound when a king speaks. Trumpets are symbolic of the authority and the weight of the one speaking. So this is a loud voice like a trumpet, verse 11, saying, this is to John, Write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So, so John here in that first section, the first few verses, is commissioned to write. He was told to do so, and because he had seen the risen Christ, he obeys. Because he has seen the risen Christ, he obeys. Obedience is something that happens when we understand that Christ is worthy of worship. Obedience isn't necessarily something that you have to have like all of the right arguments to understand fully why. <laughs> it's something we do when we see Christ for who he really is. By the way, it says seven churches. There were at least three more that we know of, probably more of, the, uh, more of those that we don't know of. Uh, we'll talk about why those were chosen in coming weeks. Keep reading in verses 12 to 16, that next section. This is that, that picture of the glory of the risen Christ, uh, capital R and C. It says this, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John speaking. Then I turned to see the voice. Uh, a little bit weird to me that he sees a voice. That was speaking to me. The voice is King Jesus in his risen glory. And so we see where this risen Christ part comes in uh, just a bit. But before that, it says, On speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. You may want to uh, circle those or underline those three words, seven golden lampstands. Uh, this is an important symbol here in this passage and in uh, Revelation. This is a significant symbol from the Old Testament uh, because a, a lampstand was a part of the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle was just a portable temple, and the tabernacle uh, had this lampstand, and it, it looks like a candle holder, but, but it, it held oil, it held olive oil, and it was meant to look sort of like an olive tree, and they would light it, and it would stay lit. You know this as a menorah. Um, here's a picture of, uh, of what it might look like. This is uh, Aaron uh, in, in the, the tabernacle lighting it, and this would be the only light in the entire place, in the entire tabernacle. What's significant for us is that all of, like, all of the other furnishings inside the temple, uh, like this one, it represented the presence of God. It was kept lit all the time. It represented the presence of God. And its purpose was to continually light the tabernacle and represent the presence of God. So Jesus himself alludes to that, and he says, I am now the light. He says, I am now the light, and he says, you all, as the church, get to be the light too. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. We don't have time to look at all of this, but look up Zechariah 4. Uh, in Zechariah 4, there's this, this parallel section to what we're reading in Revelation. You can see where this seven golden lampstands stuff comes from. So there's a bunch of cool stuff if you want to do some digging there. Uh, long story short, lampstands. We'll see this later again in, uh, in, in the passage. So let's keep moving on. Verse 13. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. It says, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Uh, we don't have time to show you all this again, but write this down if you're a note taker. Uh, look up Daniel 7, 9 to 10, and 13 to 14. I believe this is in the study notes. Uh, yes. Also Daniel 10, 5 to 19. And like with Zechariah, compare that to what we're reading in Revelation here. Uh, long story short, 
John is giving us a description here of Jesus as a king and as a priest. So, as that description continues, he gives all of these sort of Old Testament ways of speaking about what a king and a priest looks like. Look at verse 13 and following. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. That's a kingly description. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. That's a symbol of wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire. In other words, nothing escapes his view. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. That's a symbol of purity. His voice was like the roar of many waters. This recalls the voice that thundered at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Verse 16, it says, In his right hand, that's a symbol of his authority, he held seven stars. Uh, John will come back to this in a minute. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, a symbol of judgment, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's a symbol of his incomparable glory. In other words, you don't look at the risen Christ with the naked eye and not be changed. You don't just stare at Jesus in full strength glory and not come away changed. That's what, that's what the vision is meant to communicate to us. And the crazy thing is, this is the risen Christ. This isn't just Jesus says he's going to be. This is the full weight and the full authority and the full power and majesty of Jesus as he is as we speak. Which means that available to us is a clarity about who Jesus really is. And if we understood, if we understood really the full weight of that kind of a picture of the risen Christ as he is now, that would change us. Our lives, this side of his return, would be lived with greater urgency, with a greater weight and authority. You, you would go out these doors, and if you understood more fully the weight of the risen Christ, you would go out these doors and go straight to your family and tell, you, and, and tell them, I, I love you, I don't say it enough. You would walk out these doors, and you would do something different with your money that you've been doing now. It would mean, it would mean that every ounce of your being would understand more the full weight and the authority of Jesus Christ as an object of worship, which is an object of worship that must be obeyed. This is what we continue to see here in these words. A Jesus who demands obedience, verses 17 through 20. Look at that here. That's how John responds. It says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Grace even now. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I started this, I'll finish it, I'm still alive. This is where we get the risen Christ stuff. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Not like I will be, I am. I am alive forevermore. These are words that could just as well be addressed to us today as they were to John there. 
I'm currently alive forevermore. And Jesus says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm in control, Jesus says, of who gets locked up and who is liberated. So if that's, if that's a picture of the clarity of, of the risen Christ, the only proper response is obedience to whatever that risen Christ calls us to. For John, at this point, obedience meant writing it down. Verse 19, he says, Write therefore the things that you have seen. This is Jesus speaking to John. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Incidentally, verse 19 is a a cool little outline of the whole book. There are two divisions of the book, the things that are and the things that will take place. The things that are the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. The things that are to take place after this refers to chapters 4 through 22. Uh, So there's sort of this built-in outline for the whole book here. So John did exactly that. And we know that because we have (laughs) chapters 2 and 3 and 4 to 22 as they were instructed. Jesus finishes by explaining verse 20. "As As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Those will come into play uh, in the letters to the churches in the coming weeks. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. On the one hand, today's big idea, the, the, the main gist of the risen glory, the, risen, the glory of the risen Christ uh, demanding our obedience is a simple one to understand on the one hand, uh, sort of intellectually, It's not hard to to, to get. (laughs) But it's not so simple in practical terms for us to execute. For the modern Christian who is not so much a big fan of obedience. It's something we struggle with. Obedience seems to us like such an unsophisticated doctrine of the past sort of fallen into disfavor. It's like we hesitate to obey anyone if we're honest about how we work in our lives. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Are you kidding me? We, we, we don't listen to our spouses, our bosses, our parents, our church. Many of us functionally flat out reject the idea that we should obey anyone at any time because we've been raised on the crack of freedom. And I'm here to tell you that based on the risen Christ picture, self-actualization is hogwash and a dead end if you understand what I mean by dead end. Find your way, get paid, make something of yourself. If it's not about the glory of God and the glory of Christ as its goal and aim, all of that is a wasted life. Every ounce of it. 
is a wasted life, a frittered away, pilfered away on you and me who don't deserve that glory kind of life. The first duty of every soul, someone said, the first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. And for those of us who follow Christ as master, we are to live now with the keen awareness that he walks among us today as we speak in this room probing into your lives, seeing into your hearts, knowing every thought of your mind, deserving every ounce of our obedience. Someday He will demand it and we won't have a choice. So this side of heaven, with the grace still made available to us, when He deserves it and He doesn't yet demand it, give it to Him. Don't pilfer away your life now with an inadequate or a partial or a made in your image or based on your expectations in your back pocket kind of Jesus. Convenient cartoon Jesus. Live it now as if worship of the risen Christ is the only thing that matters. Reckon, reckon with the reality of a Jesus whose glory demands our obedience. Father in heaven, we are people who have majored in idols, making idols that are poor imitations of the risen Christ. Lord, help us to feel the weight of your glory as best we are able, such that it changes hearts and minds. such that it redirects our affections away from us and toward you in a way that fulfills, in a way that reckons with the truth of who you are, in a way that changes how we live, how we speak, how we care for one another. Father, make of us people who reckon with the weight of your glory and who respond in worshipful obedience. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.